Now, I want to start by thanking Hans Peter and Verena Lang and Thomas and Amy Cogdell, Ryan, the others who've invited us here, um, my wife and me, and the others from our community. We've been very touched by the depth of longing, longing for love and unity and community that we've experienced in these last days. It's been very moving for us. Ja, ich könnte versuchen, auf Deutsch zu reden, aber ich komme da, wenn nuanciertes Deutsch gefragt ist, sehr schnell an meine Grenzen. Also, ähm, der New Yorker in mir sagt, sprich in der Muttersprache. So I'm going to talk in my mother tongue. In a year bursting with cultural offerings commemorating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, a recent essay in the journal Public Forum caught my attention. It was by the theologian Jürgen Moltmann, and instead of focusing on Martin Luther and his legacy, it addressed a topic that has tended to go unnoticed in the annals of European history even today, the contributions of the so-called radical reformers of the 16th century. Moltmann focuses on one of the most visible of these radical reformers. Langsam soll ich reden. Moltmann focuses on one of the most visible of the radical reformers, Michael Sattler, a renegade Swiss prior turned Anabaptist apologist. Sattler is best known for having penned the Schleitheim Articles of 1527. But Moltmann argues that his contributions were far broader than that. In fact, he says Sattler deserves to be ranked with Zwingli and Busser as a key player of the era. He goes on, and I will quote him, Luther accused the adherents of Anabaptism of being fanatics, Schwärmer, and historians today relegate it to the so-called left wing of the Reformation. I would argue that it was the only stream of the Reformation to reject, on the basis of Christian principles, the union of church and state. Constantine and his successors turned Christianity into a state religion and declared the Roman Empire to be holy. And all subsequent reformers, with the exception of the rebaptizers, have remained silent, practically and theologically, to the law of this governmental authority. Only the Anabaptist Reformation was a reformation truly based on faith alone, sola fide. Luther freed the church from what he called the Babylonian captivity of the papacy. But it was Mishael Sattler who freed her from the Babylonian captivity of the state. The only other branch of German Christendom to have achieved the same was the confessing church under the dictatorship of the Nazis. And so I bow in reverence, says Jürgen Moltmann, before this church of martyrs, before the baptizers of the Reformation and the peace church of our own day. And I cover my face in sadness, ashamed that neither we Lutherans nor the Reformed Church recognized the Anabaptists as our brothers and sisters in the faith and in spirit. It is time that we not only acknowledge the guilt of our forebears, but also revise our own confession of faith. Now, obviously we've just experienced a tremendous outpouring of the spirit of reconciliation and finding one another as brothers and sisters on this stage just minutes ago. And we're deeply, deeply grateful for that. Moltmann, of course, is speaking of the 
institutional church at large. Moltmann is referring, of course, to the fact that in a year when Luther is being celebrated as one of history's most important proponents of religious liberty, the main creed of the Lutheran church, the Augsburg Confession, still contains, as we heard from other speakers today, surprisingly virulent and repressive language when it comes to the Anabaptists. Who were these people, and why were they so ruthlessly persecuted, not only by the Catholics of Reformation Europe, but by Protestants as well? For our purposes here, especially since we've had some detailed history today, I'll stick to the essentials. Quite simply, the radical reformers felt that the classical big-name reformers didn't go far enough. To paraphrase the Mennonite historian Leonard Gross, whereas Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and their peers sought to improve and repair the corrupt ecclesial institutions of the day under the motto reformatio, or reform, the Anabaptists argued that the system was rotten to the core, and they sought the reconstitution or restitution, the restitutio, of the body of Christ from its very foundations. Among their contributions, one could mention their unyielding adherence to the principle of nonviolent resistance, and thus their rejection of the sword and military service, their belief in the priesthood of all believers, each of whom has direct access to God, and thus their disavowal of the Roman Catholic hierarchy and the view of the priest as mediator between the lay believer and Christ, their emphasis on simplicity, mutual service, and community, and thus their condemnation not only of clerical pomp, but also of personal wealth. I already noted the contribution Moltmann focuses on, which is arguably their most important, their insistence that the body of Christ remain beholden to God and his word alone, and not to the ecclesial powers that be, with all their legal strictures and traditions, let alone to a secular institution such as the state. Moltmann is hardly the first Protestant to appreciate the witness of the Anabaptists or to call for their historical rehabilitation, for lifting the old charges of heresy and welcoming them into the fold. And I'd like to now speak about someone else who discovered them and appreciated them. 110 years ago in 1907, a budding theologian from Breslau, happens to be the great-grandfather of my wife, named Eberhard Arnold, joined his wife, Emmy von Hollander and her sister Elsa in having themselves rebaptized, thus becoming, in the truest sense of the term, Anabaptists. Their decision was the culmination of a long and arduous search, fueled not only by the stirrings of their own consciences and their participation in a spiritual revival then sweeping the university town of Halle, where they were living. In Arnold's case, his interest had first been piqued, ironically enough, in the library of his father, a staunch Lutheran scholar, where he had discovered Gottfried Arnold's famed History of the Heretics. In retrospect, the book could be said to have changed his life. There's a tendency in this anniversary year to keep looking back at 1517 at yet another facet of the Reformation. I myself am a history buff, and there are endless fascinating aspects. But what does it all mean for us today? Eberhard Arnold's genius was his readiness not only to grapple with this question historically, but to live the answers he came upon. Though a brilliant academic, he was not satisfied with ideas and analyses, 
or with exploring radicalism retrospectively, he dared in his searching to assume a forward stance. And it's that forward stance which is what drew so many of us, I think, to this conference, looking forward to the Jesus who says to each one of us, come. The Jesus who draws us all together out of our various backgrounds and histories and brings us together. In specific, Arnold sought to embody the core distinctives of the early Anabaptists, which he incidentally saw as identical with those of the earliest Christians. Peace, voluntary poverty, community, and finally, in stark contrast, to the idea of the Volkskirche, or the acculturated, assimilated church, a personal commitment to the visible body of Christ made through believers' baptism. Not content to keep this calling to himself, he challenged anyone who would listen to join him on his new path. His younger sister, Hannah, once wrote, there was no one who was safe from him, no one whom he would not confront with the commands of Jesus and the need to decide for or against him. Arnold's zeal, his love for Jesus, cost him dearly. On a personal level, both he and his fiancée were verbally attacked by their parents, disowned and banned from their homes, and denied permission by the parents to be married until he had completed his doctorate. This was easier said than done, because angered by his baptism, the theological faculty at Halle denied him permission to proceed, and he had to switch tracks to philosophy. He ended up writing his doctoral thesis on Christian and anti-Christian elements in Nietzsche. After marrying in 1909, the Arnolds moved from one city to another, mostly on account of his work as a public speaker and officer for various Christian organizations, including the YMCA. They were also, I might add here, um, among the founders of the Evangelische Allianz, the Evangelical Alliance, and were very active in Bad Blankenburg. During the First World War, the pressing issues of the day led the couple to read the Bible with new eyes. Arnold counseled veterans in a large army hospital and was shattered by what he heard and saw. And their searching soon carried them far beyond what they had experienced during the awakening in Halle. In Arnold's words, the time, and I think we could say the same of our time, the time demanded a discipleship that transcended merely edifying experiences, something that goes beyond wonderful meetings. Writing in 1931, his wife Emmy summarized the shift, and I quote now from my wife's great-grandmother, Emmy von Hollander Arnold, as deeply as the good news penetrated our hearts, the news that Christ died for sinners, thus redeeming them, another message reached us just as forcibly in our searching. God wants to rule not only the lives of individuals, but the whole world. And we were struck by the fact that God does not govern the so-called Christian world. Satan does. Social contradictions, such as the fact that one person can enjoy the plenty of life without sweating, while another does not even have bread for his children, despite working like a slave, occupied us more and more. Through reading the Bible, we realized that this could not be God's will. From the outset of our friendship, Eberhardt and I had wanted to give our lives in service to others. That was our primary concern, not our personal lives. So it was perhaps natural that we now found ourselves joining with people who were dissatisfied and were challenging public life and human relationships, not only in religious terms, but with the old slogans of freedom, equality, fraternity. We recognize those, of course, from the French Revolution. Fraternité, égalité, liberté. These ideals were drawing people from everywhere, pietists, members of the German youth movement, anarchists, socialists, communists, reformers, 
artists, free Germans, former army officers. All of them were struggling to find God's will for their lives, even if not all of them would have expressed it like that. One issue that particularly stirred us in a series of open evenings at our house in 1919 was our common guilt. We felt we were responsible not only for our personal lives, but also for the condition of today's world order. And I think all of us would share that that feeling of guilt and that feeling of concern for today's world order, not just for our own lives. There was a cry in the circles we moved in for someone to show the way forward out of the confusion. The war had shaken many people's childlike faith in God. Some could no longer believe in a God of love. Many were confused by the stance of the established churches, that pastors on both sides had blessed weapons, hurried soldiers onto the fields of slaughter, and prayed for the victory of their own nation. Whom should God heed? That sign there says in English, may God punish England. The enslavement of the proletariat, the working class, was also a burning question. Before long, we were reaching out to poor families and individuals in northern and western Berlin who lived in terrible circumstances. We saw people living seven to one room, crowded in damp cellars without windows, but we also saw how little we could do in the way of social work. At our open evenings, we read the Sermon on the Mount, and were so overwhelmed by it that we decided to rearrange our lives completely, cost what it may. Everything written there seemed to have been spoken directly to us. From the Beatitudes to what Jesus says about justice, about hungering for righteousness, loving one's enemy, praying, seeking God's kingdom first, and finally doing God's will. The Sermon on the Mount was also being illuminated for us from other sides. We discovered the message of the Bloomhearts, Francis of Assisi, the early Quaker George Fox, the Jewish thinkers Martin Buber and Gustav Landauer, and others. Not surprisingly, the Arnold's patrician friends had little understanding or patience for the new direction of the young couple that the young couple's search was taking. As Emmy writes, these middle-class Christians were concerned primarily with rescuing sinners and couldn't understand why the Arnolds would take up so-called social and political questions, or how they could sit on the same bench with non-believers, people who had, in in Emmy's words, not yet experienced the grace of God in their personal lives. And there, I think what was formative for them was Matthew 25, which we all know, the people who come to the gates of God's kingdom saying, Lord, Lord, and Jesus says, who are you? And then the people whom he welcomes, and they they obviously don't even know Jesus. They say, who are you? And he says, you served me when you gave a cup of water, when you fed the hungry, when you clothed the naked. He says, well, welcome into my kingdom, Matthew 25. By early 1920, Eberhardt gave notice at Die Forsche, the Christian publishing house where he had worked since 1915. As Emmy put it, there were too many misunderstandings and tensions, and it was no longer possible for him to go on working there in a productive fashion. Just around this time, Eberhardt was asked to take over the Neuwerk Publishing House, a new venture of the free German youth. Neuwerk was more than a business. It was a movement of young people who shared the Arnold's ideals and intentions to live according to the Gospels, perhaps in an intentional community. Emmy Arnold remembered her husband saying one day during this time of upheaval, I can no longer speak and hold lectures, at least not until I change my life to what Jesus wants it to be. He had been struck by a teaching from the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, an early Christian text, which says, and I quote, 
Not everyone who speaks in the Spirit is a prophet, but only he who models his way of life after the Lord. By his standard of living will both the false prophet and the true be recognized. To quote Eberhard Arnold directly, In my youth, I tried to lead people to Jesus through the Bible, through talks and discussions and revival meetings, but there came a time when I recognized that this was no longer enough. I began to see the tremendous power of mammon, of discord, of hatred, and of the sword, the hard boot of the oppressor upon the neck of the oppressed. Shortly shortly before the outbreak of the war, I wrote to a friend saying I could not go on. I had preached the gospel, but I felt I needed to do more, that that the demands of Jesus were practical and not limited to a concern for the soul. I could no longer endure the life I was living. In June 1920, the Arnolds made the plunge, surrendering their life insurance policies for cash and leaving their home in Cosmopolitan Berlin. They moved to Zanertz, a tiny Hessian farming village near Fulda and the nerve center of Neuwerk, the wing of the German youth movement I just mentioned. And they began living there in full community with others. Bear is mentioning here that an unpublished appendix to the Schleitheim Confession of 1527, written in what scholars to believe is Mishaz Adler's hand, refers to the communalism of the early Christians in Jerusalem and also calls for the establishment of a common purse. So, in a way, you could say our community was Anabaptist from the beginning. The fledgling commune grew by twists and turns. Idealists flocked to it, but most left after a short time, dissatisfied with its imperfections and its poverty. To the Arnolds, however, it was never an experiment. It was the answer to a deeply felt calling. Over the next seven years, the Bruderhof, which means place of brothers, grew so rapidly that it was necessary to expand to a second location. Here, the community's original livelihood publishing was supplemented by farming and by the sale of arts and crafts. In the early 1930s, the community came into direct conflict with Germany's Nazi government. After mandatory conscription was introduced, the community sent its young men of military age over the border. In response to the offer of a Nazi school teacher, they sent their children to a home in Switzerland. Members declined to give or receive the so-called German greeting, Heil Hitler. They argued that salvation was in the hands of another Führer, Jesus. They harbored disabled Jews. No wonder the Bruderhof soon became the target of harassment and then open persecution. As a Gestapo official noted, the Bruderhof represents a worldview totally opposed to national socialism. In 1937, secret police surrounded the community, imprisoned several members, and gave the rest 48 hours to leave the country. Thank God they were protected from the fate of so many others. Neighboring Liechtenstein offered temporary refuge, but could not permanently protect the Bruderhof from the threat of Nazism. Fortunately, an influx of British guests around this time opened doors in England, and the community was able to purchase a farm, a derelict farm in the Cotswolds, and relocate there. Over the next five years, the community grew to 350, largely through the addition of young English members, all of them pacifists and many of them socialists. These young people were seeking an alternative to war and to capitalism. During this period, the farm was restored to productivity, publishing work flourished, several houses were built. Even before the outbreak of the Second World War, the the community's German members, and even the pacifist stance of its English ones, attracted deep suspicion locally. Economic boycotts were organized, 
and it soon became impossible to continue. When confronted with the option of either interning all German members or leaving England as a group, the Bruderhof chose the latter and began looking for refuge abroad. Asylum was repeatedly denied in every country the community sought entrance to, most likely because its members came from both Axis and allied countries. Finally, with the help of American Mennonites, the community found refuge in Paraguay, then a backward country whose population had been decimated by civil war. Getting several people, 100 people, including dozens of children and infants across the submarine-infested Atlantic was a chapter in itself, but amazingly, everyone reached South America safely. During the first year in the Paraguayan wilderness, Bruderhof members, mostly city-raised Europeans, fought what seemed a losing battle against primitive conditions, a harsh climate, and natural pests. Babies were lost to tropical disease, but the community persevered, and soon three settlements had been carved out of the jungle, as well as a hospital for community members and local Paraguayans. The only clinic in the area, it served tens of thousands for the next two decades. Farming kept the Bruderhof on its feet during this period. Another source of income was the sale of turned wooden dishes and decorative objects. These were mostly German craftsmen. In the 1950s, in response to growing interest in community living in North America and Britain, new Bruderhofs were founded there. And by 1962, after a time of significant internal crisis, all members had relocated to the United States or to England. Over the last five decades, the Bruderhof has grown to almost 3,000 souls in about two dozen communities in New York, but also in other states, in England, Germany, Paraguay, and Australia. As regards our return here to Germany, in 2002, someone discovered that the Arnold's house in Zanerts was on the market, and we purchased it. We also have a house south of Leipzig that we've been in since 2004. It's where B and I currently live with a group of students and apprentices and a few other couples. And you're welcome to come visit us. The largest Bruderhofs have some 400 members and are like self-contained villages with multiple family dwellings, a nursery, kindergarten, school, communal kitchen and dining areas, laundry, various work departments, offices, and gardens. The smallest have about 20 members and tend to be located in urban centers like London or New York. My wife, B and I lived in Harlem for years, upper Manhattan, um, raised our children there. We also have communities in mid-sized towns. Each one has its, only da- its own daily rhythm, the smaller communities, mostly populated by college students. But each is built inwardly around a life of communal work communal meals and gatherings for singing and prayer. Each community is served by a couple who pull the strings together, so to speak, and bear an inner responsibility for the well-being of their community. They do this as part of a team, along with others who've been assigned to specific tasks, such as work distributor or oversight of finances or the care of children. We have an elder as well, But it should be noted that we share the skepticism of the early Anabaptists in regard to sacerdotalism, that is the the view that priests or ministers are closer to God. We view hierarchical structures solely from a pragmatic viewpoint. Somebody needs to pull things together. To us, the essence of Christian leadership is service. Our example, Christ, who washed his disciples' feet. He is our sole master, 
and all the rest of us remain equals as brothers and sisters. That's also why every Bruderhof member has a voice, and not just when it comes to decision-making. Every brother and sister has an obligation to speak should he or she feel that something ought to be addressed or corrected. I'll mention here we also have only one written rule, and that's a rule against gossip. When we talk behind one another's backs, community life can become hell very quickly. You all know that from the workplace or from church. We, we vow when we become members to speak openly to one another in humility and love face-to-face and maybe dry in a spouse or a trusted friend when we don't get through. But gossip is um, against the rules. It's taken very seriously. The Bruderhof regards marriage and family life as sacred. Parents bear the primary, primary responsibility for their children, and every family has its own semi-private apartment. On the other hand, children are at the heart of our community life and participate. Children are cared for communally during the workday. We regard every life as precious. Disabled and elderly members are loved and cared for within the community and participate in the daily work for as long as they are able. We believe that everyone has something to give, no matter their age, educational background, or ability, from the person with Down syndrome to the one with an advanced degree. And we do have our own trained doctors, lawyers, um, dentists, women and men, accountants. Shared meals are an essential part of our life together. Breakfasts are eaten in family apartments, but lunches and most dinners are prepared in a central kitchen and eaten in a communal dining hall. We often explain to people we're sort of like an old-style Catholic monastery, but for families and singles. And to our friends in Israel, who we have many of, we always say we're like a Christian kibbutz. And we have a lot to do with the kibbutzim over the years, many, many friends in Israel and the occupied territories as well. Communal work is an important part of daily life and takes place primarily on the grounds of the community. A good half of our labor force works either directly or indirectly for one of our businesses. These include community playthings, a line of classroom furniture and toys that was started in the 1950s in a renovated chicken barn. Today it still provides us with a livelihood. Another main source of income is Riften, a line of adjustable equipment offering support and mobility options for people with disabilities. Developed in the 1970s, it's now a leader in the rehabilitation industry. No one at the Bruderhof receives a salary or has their own bank account. We do not have Rentenversicherung, for example. Income from our businesses is pooled among all communities. No one is any richer or poorer than the others and is used for the care of all members and for outreach. Unlike the Amish, we welcome technology when it aids production, efficiency, and communication, but we frown on it to the extent that it might rob someone of meaningful work or isolate us from one another. We know how many poor souls have 300 Facebook friends these days which they've never met and are just longing for one real one. We value and nurture manual and creative skills from growing flowers and keeping bees to making pottery or playing a musical instrument. For the same reason, we disdain television. We don't want to be entertained. We'd rather read, play chess, sing together, or play in a chamber orchestra, or put on our own theatrical productions. Bruderhof schools run from kindergarten and grade school through high school. 
Beyond this, students are encouraged to continue their education in some way. Some pursue a degree, whether teaching, medicine, physical therapy, or accounting, etc. Others learn a trade. Still others gain life experience on their own by working with an organization like the Catholic Worker, one of Jean Vanier's large communities or Habitat for Humanity. Naturally, we hope our children will become responsible citizens who serve the greater good and thus contribute to society in a positive way. But they do not automatically become members. Rather, we nudge them to try, to try their wings elsewhere before deciding whether to join. Speaking of which, our goal generally is to serve society at large. We are not interested in building up cloistered islands of the blessed in the manner of those latter-day descendants of the early Anabaptists who were happy to live as die Stillen im Lande, the quiet ones of the land. On the contrary, we feel challenged by the Catholic theologian Gerhard Lofink's concept of Kontrastgesellschaften, or contrast communities, microcosmic communities that might act as a corrective and offer an alternative to a society that has gone off the rails. Or to use a biblical metaphor, to be leaven in the world's dough. Certainly, we do not hold the view that everyone else ought to be living in community as we do, or that by doing so ourselves, we're somehow better than others. As Eberhard Arnold, the founder, once put it, the Bruderhof is of little importance in terms of its size. He said it's as small as a gnat on the back of an elephant. And yet, he argues, the task entrusted to us is of greatest importance, and I quote, it is by no means our task to solve all the problems of the day. Ours is a much more straightforward and simple task. Our task is to represent unity in the midst of a disunited world, to live in friendship in the midst of a hostile world. Our task is to represent the justice of true brotherly and sisterly love in a communal life in the midst of an unjust world. In this regard, we've always devoted considerable energy to our publishing arm, The Plow. And books, mostly spiritual classics and inspirational collections, remain at the center of our efforts to reach others. In recent years, we've developed several websites and are currently expanding our online presence with an eye to reaching younger seekers. Aside from proclaiming the gospel in this way and through the witness of our daily life, we shy from proselytizing converting or trying to save souls. That's God's business anyway. To quote the letter of James, quote, true religion is to minister to widows, orphans, and the poor in, this dis in their distress, and meanwhile to keep from being polluted by the world. In that vein, a few pertinent sentences from our Constitution, foundations, and I quote, love of neighbor means a life wholly dedicated to service. This is the opposite of all selfish pursuits, including a focus on personal salvation. We want to concern ourselves with the need of the entire world. We acknowledge our share in humanity's guilt and suffering, and we desire to respond through a life devoted to love and service. Love of neighbor leads us to give up all private property, the root of so much injustice and violence. Christ teaches his followers to reject mammon, the desire for and the power of possessions. Mammon drives some to build up individual fortunes while millions lead lives of misery. As a force within economic systems, mammon breeds exploitation, fraud, materialism, injustice, and war. 
Love of neighbor demands that we stand with the mistreated, the voiceless, and the oppressed, and that we confront public and private wrong boldly with the authority and love of the gospel as Jesus did. We feel called to help him in his work of redemption and justice. Through the Bruderhof Foundation, our charity, we serve on the boards of local nonprofits and volunteer at prisons, hospitals, refugee centers, food banks, and after-school programs for underprivileged kids. Through Breaking the Cycle, a nonviolent conflict resolution program, we also bring former gang members and other motivational speakers to public schools and reach thousands of teens each year, mostly in the New York and London areas. While on the subject of nonviolence, I'll note that as conscientious objectors to war, members of our community do not serve in the armed forces either as combatants or non-combatants. In periods of compulsory military service, this has required them to perform alternative service. In several cases, it has also resulted in civil disobedience and prison terms. Back to our outreach, beyond our immediate surroundings, we've sent members on relief missions to Lesbos, Palestine, Bolivia, Sierra Leone, Rwanda, Nepal, Cambodia, and Pakistan in recent years. Currently, we have members serving in Texas and Puerto Rico post-hurricane relief, and in Jordan, in Mefrak, at one of the largest refugee camps in the Middle East. I've summarized the way we strive to live according to the Anabaptist vision. Next, I'd like to touch very briefly on our history with respect to Anabaptism, specifically to Heterianism. In 1907, as I mentioned, the co-founders of our community had themselves rebaptized here in Germany. In the 1920s, they learned that Heterian communities still existed in North America, began corresponding with them, and by the 30s had restructured their community as a Heterian Bruderhof. In 1937, when the secret police closed down our community and incarcerated members, the presence of two Canadian Hutterites very likely prevented mass imprisonment in a concentration camp or worse. The men were all lined up against a wall at one point. Since then, our relationship has vacillated with periods of close collaboration, alternating with periods of estrangement, primarily because of tensions over differing worldviews. The Hutterites came traditionally from, the, from a farming background and most members of the Bruderhof more out of an academic urban milieu. The most recent event of note in our relationship was our expulsion from the Hetarian Church in 1995, which still grieves us, largely on account of our involvement with other groups and organizations and in broader social movements. The ecumenical movement is of great importance to us. We feel it's a great gift, and that's why we were sent to this conference here this week. Um, it's been very meaningful for us, and we'll be sure to share a lot about it with our brothers and sisters at home. Also, we've never wanted to nurture just one another. And as for any close-knit community, there's always the danger of ossification, narrowness, and complacency. Here in Germany, we're in touch with many communities, and we found our ongoing exchanges with them to be mutually enriching and encouraging, all the more so because we're so different from one another, and can thus complement or challenge one another and learn from one another. One could mention the Offensive Junger Christen near Darmstadt, the Gemeinde in See, Kommunität Siloa, die Konspirativa, a group of young couples who came out of the Jesus Freak movement in Leipzig, and the Basisgemeinde with branches in Kiel and in Prenzlauer Berg in Berlin. This last group incidentally grew out of a grassroots reform movement of Lutheran pastors 
in Kornwestheim in Stuttgart in the late 1960s and then developed into a community under the leadership of Gerhard Weber, whose son is here today and he's reading the German um, translation of this talk. Gerhard Weber was inspired by study of the early Christians and the Anabaptists of the Radical Reformation, in particular the Hutterites. Back to our ongoing rift with the Hutterites, we've never represented that we were in the right or that even one side is right and the other wrong. That doesn't matter. What is important is that the viability of community be demonstrated somewhere by somebody so that, to quote Dostoevsky, the flag may be kept flying and the great idea may not die. Or to paraphrase the religious socialist Christoph Blumhardt, it doesn't matter where the break is in the cloud cover that surrounds our planet. The vital thing is that somebody somewhere is praying for an opening through which the light of God may shine down. As Johann Heinrich Arnold, a former elder of our communities, writes, let us consider for a moment the community of believers, the body of Christ that has continued through all the centuries. What then is the Bruderhof or any other little group or sect or movement or fellowship in this light? Whatever good there may be in any particular movement is there only insofar as it is surrendered to and gripped by the stream of life. The Bruderhof will pass away as many movements have passed away, but the stream of life of which it is a part can never pass away. That is what matters. If we consider the body of Christ worldwide at this point in history, riddled as it is with bullet holes caused less by external forces such as persecution than by internal ones such as schisms and controversies and divisions, I think we'll all agree that this is vital to reflect on. Reconciliation can happen only to the degree that we see ourselves, humbly see ourselves as a smaller part of a greater whole. At the end of the day, will it really matter if we were Anabaptists or Evangelicals or Catholics or Lutherans? I sometimes imagine God laughing, if not weeping, at all the labels we use to identify ourselves, and more worryingly, at all the energy we expend on trying to distinguish ourselves from others. Think about it. If you were to stack all the apologies and defenses and treatises and confessions that earnest believers have devised and sweated and fought over and written, since 1517, they'd probably reach the moon. And still, I'm sure we'd all agree that not, yet, not one of them can claim to have a monopoly on the truth. Here's an insight from Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI on this topic. He says, we do not own the truth, and so we don't have to be afraid of losing it or having it taken away from us. The important thing is that Christ's truth owns us and that we are gripped by it if we take this attitude, we, near not, we need not fear others whose views run counter to ours. We need not fear those who know nothing of Christianity. In that vein, I'd like to relate the story of our community's relationship with the Roman Catholic Church. When I was growing up, the Bruderhof frowned on Catholicism. It was, after all, the driving force behind the persecution of Anabaptist forebears. We had basically nothing to do with Catholics, certainly never entered a Catholic church. Today, despite our doctrinal differences, we count them as beloved brothers and sisters in faith and collaborate with them at every level, from the local parish to the Vatican, on matters of mutual concern, whether moral issues like abortion and euthanasia to social ones like the abolition of the death penalty and conscientious objection to war. Planned events, formal meetings, and joint statements have played a role in this development, but they were never at its heart. 
The real story is the dialogue, rapprochement, and reconciliation that came about gradually, chiefly through person-to-person encounters with neighborhood priests, with activists like Sister Helen Prejean, writers from Daniel Berrigan to Ravi George at Princeton, with Mother Teresa of Calcutta, the Franciscan Friars of Renewal in New York City, the Sisters of Life, and the Katholische Integrierte Gemeinde, a community of lay people and priests in Munich. With Cardinal Dolan of New York and Pope Francis, through it all we've come to recognize that in a time when the Christian world often seems as bitterly polarized as the secular one, we need one another. As we see it, such a path of reconciliation is an illustration, no matter how modest and limited, of the love and unity Jesus calls each of us to demonstrate so that, in quote, the world knows you are my disciples. Naturally, we can't stop at ecumenical fellowship. There's also the reconciliation called for by the writer of 2 Corinthians, and I quote, as Christ's ambassadors, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Surely it was this desire to be true to God, to be reconciled with him, that animated all the great reformers of history from Luther on down and before Luther and impelled them to speak out against whatever they felt was binding the church and preventing it from fulfilling its true mission on earth. Which brings us back to 2017 and the following questions. To what sort of Babylonian captivity might the reformers find us today? To what extent does our slavery to a middle-class mindset of entitlement, entitlement to a good education, a nice house, a car, vacations, etc., To what extent does our slavery to these things reveal our true allegiances and priorities? What idols of the present, consumerism, materialism, sex, infotainment, technology, threaten to hold us latter-day Christians in bondage from day to day? In a time of instability and turmoil, not unlike Luther's time, where does our real security lie? History shows us that reform rarely begins at an institutional level, that the renewal the church needs again and again tends to come from the margins and the grassroots and the deserts. In that regard, a thought from Oscar Romero. He says, what the world needs is people who take the risk of renouncing everything and seeking only God's justice and love. It needs people of eternal hope, people who do not yield to pessimism or let earthly cares exhaust their faith in eternal ideas. And I'm sure we'd all agree there are a lot of earthly cares weighing us all down these days. More specifically, he goes on, what the world needs is people who live out their baptism, who are faithful to their calling, whatever their Christian calling is. So many of us have practically become baptized pagans. We need to shake ourselves and each other out of habits that threaten to keep us as such. That's the end of the quote from Romero. In other words, we need, each of us, a revolution of the heart to return to what the writer of Revelation calls the first love, so that, as workers in Christ's vineyard, we can become co-creators in establishing his realm of peace and love and justice and community on this earth, so that we can bear fruit. It will cost us something. It will cost us a lot. We heard that also from Amy yesterday, that the way of the cross, the way of discipleship is a way of suffering and sacrifice and self-denial. The storied martyrs of the Radical Reformation proved that five, years ago, five centuries ago. So have many others, including the first members of my community, the Bruderhof, 
many of whom were kept on the move for the entirety of their lives at great personal sacrifice as they fled persecution and war, or as they sought to rebuild community after crippling internal crises. And I think we're all familiar with those too. Crises, dissension, times of change and renewal in our own churches, fellowships, groups, denominations. Yet, as Jesus himself promises, whoever tries to save his life will lose it, but whoever gives up his life for my sake will find it in abundance and eternally. This abundant life that Jesus promises us need not be a deferred dream. It is promised to us now, today, wherever wherever even a handful of people come together in peace and unity and love, reconciled with one another, as we experience today, and with him. Quote, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. In a world of apocalyptic catastrophes and terrors, a world in which, as the Gospels presciently warn us, the love of many shall grow cold, such words, these words of Jesus, hold tremendous hope. Thank you.